the book of Genesis. We're looking together at chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. Our focus, like last Sunday night when we were together, is verses 22 and 23, particularly verse 23. But uh, We're going to begin reading in verse 19. So uh, Genesis 25 and verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. That one shall be the stronger, sorry, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. My intention is to pick up tonight where we left off last Sunday night. Uh, we have Rebecca here, and she's, she's anxious to the point of despair. Uh, the baby boys within her womb are, are struggling. They're violently attacking one another. And so she inquires of the Lord. And God responds by declaring that, that what's happening inside of her is according to His great purpose that the struggle of these boys within her womb is a sign of what He has purposed to come. These two boys will become two nations. Those nations will not like each other very much. One brother is going to become stronger than the other, and the stronger brother is not going to be the older one, as we would expect, but the younger one. The older is going to serve the younger. And so we see in these verses the doctrine of predestination, which we looked at last Sunday night, and then also the doctrine of divine election. God chooses one brother to be stronger and the other to be weaker. God chooses one brother to be the ancestor of the Messiah, and the other will not have a place in the Messiah's ancestry. God chooses one brother to become a nation with which he will have a special relationship. Jacob is going to be renamed Israel. And Jacob is going to become a nation called Israel. They will become God's chosen nation in the ancient world. A nation in which there will be many who come to know the true God and they will come to know Him truly. Meanwhile, Esau's descendants will will fade into the pagan masses. They will not hear God's voice at Mount Sinai. Esau's descendants will not be given God's word or his priesthood or any of the other great shadows of the gospel that Israel will receive. Jacob and his line are chosen for a sacred, holy purpose. Esau's descendants, while very much a part of God's plan, are not chosen for that sacred, holy purpose purpose. And so this is the doctrine of divine election, simply that God makes choices concerning people. 
Election makes sense if we already understand divine predestination. We saw last week that this doctrine says that God, from the foundations of the earth, has already determined the future of every human being. Indeed, God has determined all of history before history began. It is His story. Why can God say to Rebecca, this is what's going to take place with Jacob and Esau? This is what's going to take place with their descendants? He can say that because He is the one who scripted who wrote what is going to take place. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139.16 And this isn't true for just Jacob and Esau. It's true for you and it's true for me. Our lives are a part of a plan. A plan that God has scripted for His glory. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. All of this universe and the unfolding of its history is the expression of God's glorious attributes. For God's glory, Jacob and Esau were created and assigned to their particular roles in the unfolding of world history. And your role and my role, however big or however small, were also scripted by God in this way. If we think about this, we see that there is lots of evidence for it even outside of Scripture. You didn't choose when you were going to be born. God did. You did not choose whether you would be male or female, whether you would be tall or short, etc. God chose those things. Indeed, if you, if you think about your biology, you know that at the time of your conception, there were a thousand other possible yous that could have become you, and yet you are the you that are here. And you didn't make that happen. God made that happen. He chose which you would be fashioned in your mother's womb. God chose what family you would be born into, in what part of the world, with what privileges and with what obstacles. God chose what natural talents you would have as well as what natural limitations. God has determined the circumstances of your life, both good and bad. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. We need to be reminded, we saw it last week, the Bible affirms both divine predestination and human responsibility. God has preordained all that will take place in our lives, even down to the thoughts that go through our minds and the words that come out of our mouths, and yet we are still creatures able to do what we choose to do, and we will be justly held accountable for the decisions that we make. If we can get our mind around that doctrine of, of divine predestination, that, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, well, then divine election is easy to understand. Because obviously, if God has determined the details of your life and the details of my life, He's made choices. God elected for me to be born at Nash Hospital. There are billions of people in this world for whom He elected a different place of birth. 
God elected for you to be here tonight where there are, there are billions of people in this world that God did not choose for them to be here tonight. And predestination, God makes choices about each person. God makes choices about the path that people will take. That's divine election. In Jacob and Esau's case, God chose to take Jacob and his descendants down a path in which he himself would speak to them. He himself would have a unique relationship with them. He chose to work through them to bring about the birth of his son. And he chose to take Esau and Esau's descendants down a different path. Esau's descendants were not given the same gifts and the same graces, nor did God owe them the same gifts and the same graces. God's choice to bless Jacob did not obligate him to bless Esau. Esau's descendants became the nation of Edom. In the later pages of Scripture, we find Edom causing lots of trouble for Israel. Now, while divine election makes perfect sense when one understands divine predestination, it doesn't change the fact that while in some ways it might can be easier to understand intellectually then, it can still be very difficult to come to terms with. And especially becomes hard to come to terms with when we realize that, that heaven and hell and salvation, that these things are all ultimately in the hands of God. That all of us are sinners, all of us are deserving of God's judgment. And yet God in His sovereign mercy brings some to salvation and passes over others. And this can be very, very difficult to handle. I think it helps us to remember that even in the Old Testament, it was God who chose whom He would have a relationship with and whom He would not. Nation after nation after nation, these were real people, rose and and then fell away in the pages of world history, most of whom never knew anything about the true God, except for what nature itself teaches and that they suppressed with their sinful hearts. Of all the nations in the world, only Israel was chosen. Of all the other nations, to hear God's voice, to be given God's word. Look over at Deuteronomy 7 with me real quick. Just flip over some pages to Deuteronomy 7. This is what God said to Israel through Moses. Deuteronomy 7, looking at verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people holy. Remember that word holy means set apart. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your father that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So you see, on a globe with, at that time, hundreds or even thousands of people groups, God chose one people group to have a special relationship with. God's plan to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to every people group on the planet began with giving the gospel to one people group. 
the people of Israel. And every other nation besides Israel at that time was without God and without His Word and without hope. And then even within Israel, there was an election. Right? Lots of them. Lots of choices that God made. Not every physical Jew was a true believer. Only those who actually came to trust God. And not everyone in Israel could go into the inner courts of the temple. Only the priests born of the tribe of Levi. Not even everyone born in the tribe of Levi could go into the inner courts of the temple. You had to be born a priest in the tribe of Levi without any physical defect. Moreover, every clan within the tribe of Levi had an assigned responsibility and only one man of the tribe of Levi could enter into the Holy of Holies, the place in which the special presence of God dwelt. So we have millions of people on the earth and in every generation God chose one to be able to enter into a special presence. That's divine election. God making choices concerning people. Look with me at the Gospel of Luke real quickly. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 4. I want to begin in verse 16. We're at the beginning of of Jesus' ministry. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He has been tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And now he comes to his hometown He comes back to Nazareth, the place where where he lived most of his whole life. And look at what Jesus begins doing in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Do you feel the tension? Every eye is on Christ. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? See, so far so good. Jesus comes to his hometown. and He he stands before people who, who probably knew him when he was a baby. People who knew him when he was a teenager. And Jesus stands up before them, reads from the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says very unequivocally that he is the Messiah to his hometown folk. And yet, the people are not yet too upset by what he's saying. Maybe they think that he's you know, speaking metaphorically or, or something, but we're told instead that they marvel at his words, at his gracious words. Right? We're told that they were saying to one another, is not this Joseph's son? But then Jesus goes on and teaches something else. 
he goes on to teach the doctrine of divine election to his own hometown people. Look at how he does it. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. You see, just because people could heal people, just because Jesus could heal people, didn't mean that He was going to heal everyone everywhere. He would heal whom He chose. He said there were many widows that suffered and died during the great famine of Elijah's day, but there was only one widow to whom Elijah was sent to to bring help. He says there were many lepers who were suffering from their disease in the days of Elisha, but only one was chosen by God to be healed by him. In other words, he said God chooses to bless whom he chooses to bless. God is not obligated to bless everyone equally. Indeed, God is not obligated to bless anyone at all. Justice demands that God curse us all. Only because of the cross can God rightly show mercy to anyone. And so you see what's being taught here. It is the sovereignty of God. That God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, with whoever or whatever He wants, for whatever purpose He wants. It's what it means to be God. He is the potter. We are the clay. He can do to us as He pleases. Dear church, in our man-centered, God-belittling culture, we need to let this truth sink into our souls. God has the right to do with us whatever He pleases. And whatever He does with us will be just and will be right. We will have no grounds to protest and there is no higher court to whom we can appeal. God is judge and God is jury and God is just in all that He does. Can we handle this day after a hurricane? Spurgeon said, Men will allow God to be God everywhere except on His throne. They'll allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow Him to be in His almonry, dispensing His alms and bestowing His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, to light the lamps of heaven, to rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends His throne, then creatures gnash their teeth. 
And when we proclaim an enthroned God and His right to do as He wills with all that He owns, to dispose of His creatures as He thinks well without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed. Then it is that we are execrated. Then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on His throne is not the God they love, but it is God upon His throne that we love and that we love to preach. It is God upon His throne in whom we trust. So God has made choices concerning what He will do with human beings. And in the case of Jacob and in the case of Esau, one was elected into the ancestry of the Messiah, the other was not. Through Jacob will Abraham and Isaac's offspring be named, not through Esau. And the question that comes to us is this one. Why? That is, what was it about Jacob that made God choose him instead of Esau? Esau was the firstborn. We might would have thought that he would have been the obvious choice. So so why was Jacob chosen? Was, Was he smarter than Esau? Was he more righteous than Esau? Did Jacob have more faith than Esau? What our verses show us is that God made this choice before either boy had even been born. Neither of these boys were going to be saints as they grew. Um, In fact, as we'll see next week, both were wretched sinners just like you and me. We can relate to Jacob and Esau. In many ways, Jacob was the more sinful of the two. Esau is going to make some really foolish choices. Esau is going to give himself too quickly to his lust. But Jacob, he is a deceiver. We're going to see Jacob be like the devil in the way he slyly manipulates people to get what he wants. Jacob is a very crooked and corrupt young man. If I was making this choice, I would have chosen Esau as the better son. God chose Jacob to bless, Jacob to have a relationship with, Jacob to change and to save. Why? Ultimately, God works all things according to His sovereign will. There was nothing in Jacob or in Esau that God... that caused God to choose one over the other. The reason for that election lies solely within the plans of God. Jacob would never be able to boast that God had chosen him. He did not deserve to be chosen. And Esau could never complain that God had not chosen him. He didn't deserve to be chosen either. And just as it was for them, so it is when we consider salvation. None of us in this room deserves to have been chosen. Why am I believing on the Lord Jesus Christ when there are so many around me that do not? Why are you believing the gospel when people who have heard it many more times than you have are not believing it? Is it because we're better than they are? Is it because we're smarter or wiser? Are we more righteous than others? The teaching of the Scriptures is that none of us deserves this gift of faith. None of us deserves salvation. All of humanity is blindly 
running eagerly towards hell. And God in His grace has chosen to open the eyes of some, to show them the way of salvation, to to compel their hearts towards that way. John 6.65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John 5.40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the condition of natural man. We are all deserving of God's wrath, even as God calls all people to salvation. And there is a gospel call to all people. Everyone, come, be saved. But by nature, not one person will respond to God's call. No one wants God, not the true God. We like a God of our own imagination. We like a God who is, who is centered on us. We like a God who exists for us. We like a God who realizes that the true God of our life is us. And as long as He can be God while we still be God, we will accept Him. But the true God is not a God that the natural heart will receive. The true God with His demands, with His authority over us, with His sovereignty. This is not a God people want. Only by the Holy Spirit changing people's hearts through the message of the Gospel are we saved, are we brought to love the God who is, well, who really is. The God who is in control and the God who is good and righteous and wise. For whom does this happen? It happens for those whom God has chosen. And so in Acts 13, 48, we learned that that it wasn't everyone that heard the gospel preached that day that believed. It was those whom God, quote, had appointed to eternal life that believed. Paul, speaking in Philippi, we, we learn of this woman named Lydia, and we're told that God opened her heart, as Paul taught. That's what must happen. The opening of their heart. Only God can do that. This language is all over the Bible. When people believe, the credit is given to God. He is the one who has chosen His people. Now why make so much out of this doctrine of election, out of Jacob and Esau? Well, the reason is because there is no place in the Bible where the doctrine of election is more clearly taught than Romans chapter 9 and One of the key texts, if not the key text, of Romans chapter 9 is our text. Genesis 25, 22, and 23. Look over to Romans 9. Let's see it real quickly before we wrap things up. I want you to see why we're talking about this tonight and why why we're spending time on this doctrine and this passage. In Romans 9, Paul is explaining why it is that Jesus, the Messiah, came on the scene And most of the Jews rejected him. Why were so many Jews in Paul's day and still in our day refusing to believe in the Messiah that had been promised to them for centuries? And Paul's ultimate answer is God's sovereign choice. Begin reading in verse 6, Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed... For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all of children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son." 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Notice that Jacob and Esau were not yet born. They had done nothing, either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, God's sovereign choice, God told Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. You see, election is not based on works. Jacob had not been more obedient than Esau, more righteous than Esau when this decision was made. Not at all. This election was because of the God who calls. God set His loving favor upon Jacob while His wrath remained upon Esau. Mount Hermon, many of us in this room have been the recipients of the mercy of God. We have heard the gospel of Jesus crucified for sinners. We have been given new hearts that trust Jesus and love Him and we want to follow Him. Many of us in this room, we are God's children. As I look around this room, I don't think there's a person in this room who's an adult that I don't have confidence about. This is a room of, of, of Christians, of, of chosen people. Our sins are forgiven. We're, we're on our way to heaven. Everything is working for our good. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And yet there are billions breathing on this planet right now who have not received that mercy. There are sinners. Sinners like you and me who will live and die and never hear the gospel and never be saved. And they will go to the hell that I deserve, the hell that you deserve, while God's saving love rests on you. Many are called, but few are chosen. Can you handle this teaching? It's hard. There's a reason Jesus' hometown folks tried to throw him off a cliff. This is not easy teaching. But boy, should it humble us in the dirt. If you have believed on Jesus, God did that in you. He caused it to happen. Your salvation is owing completely to the mercy of God. Will you not give Him glory? Do you not see why every moment of your life should be a moment lived in grateful, worshipful obedience to Him? Grasping this doctrine should change us. Let me close by just quickly reminding you of three or four of the blessings that come from believing this doctrine of divine election. Number one, the doctrine of election destroys our pride. It means we cannot take any credit for our salvation. Are we believing? Yes. Are we choosing every day to follow Jesus? Yes. Are we choosing to turn from our sins? Yes. We are doing those things, and yet we would do none of those things if God's grace did not compel us to do so. We love Him because He first loved us. 
So there is no grounds for boasting. Second, the doctrine of election offers grounds for the assurance of our salvation. If my salvation was based on my choosing God, then I can lose my salvation. I may have chosen Him yesterday and was saved, but then what's to keep me from rejecting Him today and losing my salvation? If my choosing God is what gains salvation, then my rejecting God must lose it. This is why those who have historically denied the doctrine of election, think about the Methodists, think about the Wesleyans, these folks who have normally denied the doctrine of election, they've also denied the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You can lose your salvation if it's based on your choice. But if my salvation is not ultimately, fundamentally based on my choice of God, but rather on God's choice of me, well, then the words of Jesus are of great comfort. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We are safe in the loving arms of Christ. God has not chosen to give a people to His Son only to let them perish. If we are gods now, we will be gods forever. Third, the doctrine of election promotes holiness. It does this in two ways. First, understanding the doctrine of election causes us to pursue holiness because it's only through holiness that we can say with confidence that we are a part of the elect. We don't have time, but if we did, we'd turn over to 2 Peter 1. We'd see verses 3 through 10, which talk about making our calling, making our election sure. And it talks about these holy virtues to pursue. And as you pursue these holy virtues, you can have more and more confidence. I am the elect. I am chosen of God. I do belong to Christ. I am a part of His bride. And so if you're here tonight and there's just nagging doubts about this, am I really one of God's people? Go to 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10. Meditate on that. You'll see how to have assurance. And second, the doctrine of election promotes holiness because once we've come to believe that God has chosen us and that His grace is on us, we want to do everything we can to be pleasing to Him. We want to walk worthy of the gospel we have received. And then finally, the doctrine of election promotes evangelism and promotes missions. Contrary to what some may think, the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation has been one that has encouraged and stirred up many Christians to greater faithfulness in sharing the gospel. This doctrine tells us that God does have people who will believe from every tongue, tribe, and nation. How do we know they're going to believe? Because God has chosen them and He's told us that He's chosen them. When a missionary goes to an unreached people group, he doesn't have to scratch his head and wonder, are there going to be any of God's people here? Am I going to preach my whole life and never have one person believe? Whether it happens in his lifetime or another, somebody from that people group will believe. His life will not be wasted. There will be fruit. This doctrine teaches us that, that we must never think that someone is too far gone to be saved. We do not know whom God has chosen. We're called to take the gospel to everyone indiscriminately. We don't do any choosing when it comes to preaching the gospel. We're to preach the gospel to every person that breathes. Even those that we think are the most unlikely to ever be converted. 
because we don't know whom God has chosen, and if he's chosen them, he has a very strong, powerful right hand that will accomplish his salvation, and people we thought would never believe, you'll see their hearts melt, and they will. We must be careful that we do not follow so many in our own day who shun this doctrine. It's hard to shun because it's everywhere. So you're going to have a hard time with your Bible if you shun it. But you shouldn't shun it because it's full of the glory of God. It's full of the grounds of your salvation. When Paul wrote of election, it was almost always in the context of worship. This was the kind of thing that made Paul break out into praises. And that's the way we should see it too. It is mysterious. We should marvel at its mystery. But we should also be deeply, deeply humbled by it. Dear Christian, thank God for the mercy that He has shown to you and boast loudly to everyone you can of His kindness towards sinners. The doctrine of election is true. It is also true that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let us hold to both. Let's pray.